Hi, I'm Joel. And I'm Kishin. And this is Tea for Two. This is our BFF podcast where we talk about anything from science to popular culture, the arts, and life in Singapore. Hello everyone, it's me, Joel. I'm a playwright and performer. And hi everyone, this is me, Kishan. I'm a science educator. Welcome back to our best friend podcast, T42. Hey Kishan, guess what? What, Joel? <laughs> what? It's our fifth episode! Oh my god, I, I can't believe it. Like, I, I, I don't know how we, we, we're doing this. But I don't know. It's great. It's, I it's, love uh, it. It's like, <laughs> I feel this is like four episodes more than what we thought we were going in for. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth, sister. It really it's is. It's a combination of like stay at home, nothing to do, and wow, this time got a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and also, uh, right. yeah, we've bought all the equipment, might as well. <laughs> correct, correct. In fact, like midway through this podcast process, I upgraded the mic. So I don't know if you can tell or not. If you've been following us from the beginning, right, my sound quality is a bit better than it used yes, to be. Yes, <laughs> dear, dear listeners, like he has. A whole thing now, like everything. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I think you mean she. But uh, <laughs> how are you, Joel? How am I like that, Law? What's that to say, really? It's <laughs> just like <laughs> this fucking circuit breaker has begun to grind on my mind in ways I didn't think possible. And I just truly oh cannot my God, wait right. for us to be let out of our pens. All the sex <laughs> I will have is not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is really it really has been a ridiculous challenge. And also not just a circuit breaker, like, the world is burning around us. It's like truly it's like I have I'm now longing for the for January, you know, where we thought January was shit. It's ridiculous. <laughs> the world is burning. It's a kind of really and I think that's been weighing on my mind a lot lately too. I think there's just some days that I felt very unable to get out of bed. And I think it has something to do with the fact that we are able to absorb so much of it through social media, right? That we are aware of so much and it can be so difficult to hold it all in your head at the same time. Uh, so it can be very uh, incapacitating. It's an I information feel. overload, on, an emotional overload on some level of solar. It's quite crazy. Yeah. So that's actually a kind of really tidy segue into what we're going to be doing this episode. Um, we've decided to do another deep chat, uh, just yes. like the last one, where instead of you know breaking out into our usual buffet of topics, we're going to focus on quite in-depth, in an in-depth way on one particular subject. Uh, and this episode, we are going to be talking about... Race, race and racism and in racism Singapore. in Singapore, uh, which is obviously on the forefront of everybody's yeah, mind. Yeah, we wanted to speak to our own experiences, right? And I have quite a bit to say about this. Mm. So yeah, and on some level, this is also therapy for me. So I'm I'm actually quite excited. <laughs> yeah. So strap in, dear listeners. This is gonna be rough. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a good place to start, right, Kish? Um, is this Instagram story you posted a few weeks ago where I think you shared a link to a Punjabi song and you were saying how much the song moved you, but then what really got me was this comment you made about how um, you were you really regretted 
how late in life you come to this, this being like your culture and that you spend a lot of time growing up avoiding, you know, your culture, your cultural heritage. I've heard this song many times and every time I cry, it is the music of it, you know, mm. and the fact that it is a language that is spoken by my grandmother mm. and what makes me very sad is that a lot of it I don't understand, you know, but it is, it is a beautiful song and it, it hits me right in the gut and in my heart. It reminded me about how difficult it was growing up in Singapore as a as an Indian person, as a minority. And not just a minority but a but a non-Tamil Indian minority. Because mm. you know in our horrible reductive CMIO that I is very much represented as mm. a Tamil uh, person. And for me that meant growing up that I was not represented at all. I didn't see myself anywhere. And so a lot of my experiences growing up told me that I was wrong. You know, not just mm. wrong in like, you are the wrong kind of Indian. But like but conceptually wrong. Conceptually wrong. Like, like even, even like what we would, we would now classify as like nonsense primary school racism, right? E like, oh, you're so <laughs> black. Like you turn the lights off, Kishan disappears. Or, you know, or, or if, if it's dark, just ask Kishan to smile. All these sort of things, it is baby racism. And if someone were to say that to me right now, I would laugh so hard because it is stupid and you are an idiot. You know, but mm. baby racism is very affecting when you are a baby. You know, and the mm. problem is you don't know that it's affected you. And that's what happened to me in primary school. Lah. I could, I was I was the victim of all sorts of all these nonsense statements. And my reaction to this was just to laugh together with people because that was what everyone was doing. So of course I thought that was the right thing to do. Lah. You know, you mm. would just laugh and growing up thereafter, like leaving primary school and moving on to secondary school and, and, and later racism got a bit more um, more nuanced you know I would get statements like wow you're very handsome for an Indian person you're not as dark mm. you're not as dark for an Indian person like um, oh you're very smart ah, for, for this and that this and that and it was basically all of it in its sum told me that there was something wrong with what I was so it was it was very difficult trying to grow up with this in my head mm. Even at home? Home, to me, was an interesting space because you would think it's home as a place you would go to to touch base with your culture, to get, you know, to get reacquainted with your culture. And, you know, uh, but for me, I grew up in an English-speaking household. My parents spoke to each other in, in Hindi. They, uh, my, my grandparents were from Punjab. They moved here uh, to Singapore when they were young. And my parents are Singapore, uh, the Singapore-born, both of them. So they, they can speak to each other in Hindi. My mom also speaks Punjabi. She speaks Punjabi to her to her sisters, uh, to her brothers. But to us, uh, to, to, to their children growing up, they spoke to us in English because they saw utility in English. I mean, to be very frank, they really didn't think Hindi and Punjabi was required to succeed or, or, or yeah, on worse, they thought it was an impediment to success in Singapore. So when we went to school, they actually made us study Malay, Malay yeah. you know, instead of, instead, instead of sending us to uh, Hindi school over the weekends because they really didn't think it was useful. There, there was a lot of mixed messaging at home. Mm. When I see them with, their, with my extended relatives, with their, with their own siblings, speaking in Hindi or in Punjabi, and I have vivid memories growing up of going to my uncle's house when I was in primary school and we would have late night parties, okay? We would blast Bangra out at like from 9pm to 12pm until the neighbours told us to stop. 
And we would see my aunties and uncles just dancing the night away. It was gloriously beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it is beautiful. They would just do this at home unprovoked. Like we would just go and have dinner, and then someone would put a, like a Dylan Mendy like song into it, like somewhere, and then boom, people were on the dance floor, and suddenly there was lighting. <laughs> it was amazing. It was it was just beautiful. So there's this very te- there there was tension in how like a disconnect uh, right between yeah there was a full disconnect yeah right. So what that did to me growing up was that it basically told me that. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't embrace my culture mm. in its entirety, mm. and that manifested in many. Now that I think about it, many harmful, awful ways. Mm. One thing that one thing that uh, I think you and I have talked about is that it it it, it resulted in me having a, a perceived accent. You know, when I speak to people, you know, and people commenting on the fact that oh, you don't sound Singaporean, oh, you don't sound Indian, mm. because I made a concerted effort to steer away. From wanting to sound Indian, from you know, from 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 this stereotypical way an Indian, a Singaporean Indian person should sound, right? You know, and I and I actually prided in, in the fact that I could understand Mandarin. Mm. You know, growing up, I was like, oh yeah, of course I get it, and I I I would I would throw mm. out phrases here and there. I was very trying very hard to just push these labels away and say my race is not who I am. Mm. I am I I wanted to be without race on mm. some level. And sadly, you know? yeah, and sadly, what that means, I guess, is aligning oneself as fast as possible with you know, Chinese ness, whatever Correct. that is, right? So, for me, it was it was it was a lot of that, which of course meant that I discounted everything to do with my culture. Mm. I it was not uh, I was not attached to it at all. I have okay, so uh, a bit of a backstory. Mm. My dad growing up used uh, is my dad is a musician. Okay, mm. and what does he uh, play? Growing. Uh, he plays the madringam and the tabla, mm. and he sings. Mm. What he would, what he used to do every Sunday. Okay, for the longest time I can remember, we when we were in primary school, people would stream in and out of our houses. It was literally open house. My mother would be in the kitchen. My room, the room that I am recording from right now, used to be his music room, and they would practice Bollywood songs, which they would then get hired for for Malay weddings downstairs the block. <laughs> so. My 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 father was this. My, my every Sunday they would have bookings for Malay weddings and they would sing Bollywood songs. Every Saturday was practice. <laughs> yeah, some, some, something like that. It was basically a whole weekend affair. And we would, I got invited to a shitloads of Malay weddings. It was amazing. But I remember growing up at one point as a kid, hating that, mm. like viscerally hating that because it was. Indian culture foisted onto me. It was Bollywood songs foisted onto me. It was it was full um embracing that culture in a way that I felt I shouldn't because it impeded my progress. It's, and it's because yeah. something about this 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 sound and this music and this culture was directly linked to the kind of abuse you were receiving at school, and that yeah. made you feel like exactly yeah. that I needed to distance myself entirely from this. Mm. Yeah, so I grew up with all of this in my head, with trying to be, trying to be a racial, if if that made sense. And you are right in Singapore to be a racial, to be without a race, is to really be majority race, lah. Mm. You know, so like. What was the turning point for you, and how late in your life was that exactly? <laughs> so this like turning point came in my twenties, okay, my mid twenties when I started when I started working and I was put into a workplace with a lot of Chinese people, mm. and that setting was 
I didn't think it would be so toxic to my mental health, but mm. it really, really was. Uh, people only spoke in Chinese, even around me. I went to meetings where um, conversations would happen in Chinese. I was actually, f- like, there were meetings where I was, I was forgotten, you know? Like, there was, I went to a meeting once and then a, a, the person in the meeting actually said, oh, yeah, how, to, how to talk about this? We are all Chinese people here. And I had to, at the back of the room, just raise my hand and say, Hi, I am here. You, know, you were talking about baby racism, obviously, and the racism of the school environment. But do you think this was somehow more painful because it was an adult situation and a professional Absolutely. setting where you think, Hey guys, we should be doing a lot That's better. You're exactly grown. exactly it. You should be doing a lot better. Right? Also, you have mm. fucking eyes. You send me an email yeah. invite for this meeting. You know, I'm like, what, what, mm. what, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, not to excuse, not to excuse, obviously, childish racism. That's just as egregious, right? But it's like you think reasonably by a certain age, people would have clued yeah. up. So it, it, it was awful la, and, and it, it mm. ate at me in a way. That, mm. that I, I never thought would hit me so hard and it forced me into a lot of introspection. What, what Exactly what kind of introspection do you, do you, do you remember? I just remember mm. being in a position, in a place where I was, like, there were a lot of arrows slung at me in terms of microaggression, in terms of being finally, mm. like, shown to be a minority. I don't know if that makes expressing that right. Right, that, like, this, this a-racial thing you think you've engaged in actually is... Yeah, it's an illusion lah. I, I, I just cannot be erasial, you know? Mm. So I think that all crumbled in some ways and I needed to mm. face it head on. So, mm. so and I also started to think about, from this introspection, I started to think about language. That there was a deep sense of shame that I didn't even know my own mother tongue. You know, that I would enjoy, mm. uh, that, that I would hear Bollywood music, I would listen to Bollywood music and hear people speak in Hindi, but I have no idea for the most part what they are saying. So I actually went to find mm. Hindi classes in Singapore. And Joel, those experiences, uh, every like Thursday, I still recall in the evenings, going down from work to Little India and just being in a space that forced me to speak Hindi, that made me say mm. words that I would trip over, uh, no, that, that would trip out of my mouth in a very uncomfortable, uh, inelegant way, that now they rolled out beautifully, was therapeutic. It was, like, talking about this makes me emotional. What made me so happy was that all those times when I was passively listening to Hindi uh, from my parents mm. or from Bollywood, the, lesson, the, the language is on my skin. Like, it literally... Mm. The access to it was so easy and I felt oh, I felt right. so natural with it and I was thinking, why the hell did I wait so long? Because this is who I am. You can try and scrub it off you by the end of the day, it's literally this thing that resides on your skin that you if you're thrown into the right environment, it will pull you back into its embrace, right? Yeah. So for me, that language gave me a sort of power. In a victorious way, right? In a way yeah. where it's no longer like a negative thing, but something that you, you, you see as beautiful and you're trying to Definitely. acquire and strengthen because yourself with, right? Growing yeah. up, I never felt it to be beautiful, you know? So having mm. found this access and understanding how beautiful this is for me and how personal this is for me, how, mm. how me this is for me, I, I, mm. I then understood who I was a little bit better and was not taking shit from anyone because 
how could I after that? Because this is just me. If you are giving me shit because of me, then you are an asshole lah, and I should stand up for that. You mm. know, so that mm. allow me to ex- going through Hindi classes allow me to experience that and to realize that. So that was very powerful. You know, but it was also having very good support system. You know, uh, and this comes mm. from this comes from having minority friends, you know, like Puja and Shri, you know, whom, whom you are friends with as well. These people, these lovely, lovely people in my life allow me to experience my minority, my, my Indianness in a way that I never, whatever Indianness mm. means lah, in a way that I never, never mm. did growing up. Like Puja would mm. send me Bollywood songs and like lovely things. We would go to <laughs> Bollywood clubs together. My first time, the first time I stepped into a Bollywood club was in my 30s. Okay, I never thought I would. And it was such a transcendent experience. There are videos, okay? It was such a mm. transcendent experience. I've seen yeah, that. <laughs> it is glorious because it reminded me of those parties that my aunties and uncles would have in their 50s oh, dancing yeah. after a full dinner <laughs> bellies full of chai in them and just just dancing We're sitting in this moment now where race is in the forefront, right? And it's been sparked off by something that's happening in in the West. But like this is an ongoing conversation that's picked up a lot of momentum in the past couple of years, right? I would really say that like, you know, in in a really powerful and I think urgent way, conversations about race in this country have really hit a very uh, intense high lately. And it's about fucking time. We're having these conversations, right? Sure, absolutely. It's but about fucking. I guess, like, how does it make you yeah. feel, like being in this moment specifically right now, where like race is just being talked about on right. such a, uh, a, a intense, constant level? You're being made to, I'm no doubt, constantly talk about, speak to, and address your yeah. race. You know. Yeah, I mean, um, I I feel I feel two things about it. Okay, firstly, uh, like like you said, I'm I'm very glad that a conversation at this level, you know, at this intensity, is being had. I think it is important. I think it's about mm. fucking time, you know, that people talk about certain things and people see. Even in Singapore, if we don't practice uh, certain things because we can't demonstrate, we can't throw raffles down into the river, <laughs> you know, but to visibly see this so so viscerally in like social media, I, I think mm. it's important that, that, that we at least be mm. an audience to it. But on the other hand, I've had this conversation about race my entire mm. fucking life. You know, having to having to defend my position or to justify who I am or to correct mm. people, you know, cons- almost constantly. Mm. I mean, let me tell you, Joel, it hasn't it hasn't abated mm. in, in the least, okay? Like even at work, I it I have to do the work with people with with respect to race and racism. And it can be so fucking tiring. So I'm happy on one on one side, but on the other on the other side, I'm like, can you guys go and figure it out on your own and then yeah. come and talk to me? Because you need to meet us at the level that we are at yeah. already. You know? Yeah. Like Chinese people in this country are so by and large reluctant to do that work because we live under this illusion that there is no problem. Right, it's that that's the grand delusion at work in our country that we really think that there's no problem, and it 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 it's 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 reached a point where now people are just like bringing it up on such an intense level and showing people the receipts, right? And it's like, and and Correct. still there are yeah. people out there who believe that Singaporeans are not 
you know, by and large, racist people or that racism exists in this country. And I'm just wondering, like, how many examples, right, from our own lives do we (laughs) need to show to people to prove that, you know, it's like, these are not isolated incidents. This is a pattern, a recurring pattern of abuse and and discrimination that is happening and that is embedded in many ways into you know our our culture some of our policies yes i i think that we have a problem as a country uh with talking about race we uh, we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to sit in our discomfort. You know, Joel, I, I think I've mentioned this to you many times that like when we go to the theatre, oh, we yeah. watch a play, every time that there is something uncomfortable, the audience does not know how to react to it laugh. and what they do is laugh. You know, they just laugh and they break the tension and I'm sitting there in the in the audience going, what the fuck are you doing? You know, so it's it's a very... It's, and I think that that is a good example yeah. to use with racism. We don't know how to sit in this discomfort and we need to learn to just accept it. Accept this discomfort Wallow in it for a bit You know, I, I myself am on a journey When it comes to like Anti-racism and dealing with these questions And like I think I've come Quite a far way And even then, right Like I will admit that It's sometimes On a subconscious level I do feel the sting What I've learned to right. do As you say Is like Oh, okay, law, Yeah, it's this thing Like obviously compares Does not compare to whatever you know, racialized minorities in this country are going through. Like, I can afford to sit with a bit of a sting, right? I can afford to take that sting and not say anything about it, right? I can afford to take that sting and not turn it against other people. I can afford to sit in the discomfort and 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 let it, as you say, wash over me, process it, and 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 not turn it around and go, why are you guys <laughs> being so chuchu? Yes, and and it uh, it always puzzles me, like why people don't want to take the time to listen to an experience that is fundamentally not yours. So why don't you just listen, you know? Uh, uh, This defensiveness makes me very confused, you know? And for me to actually tell a person like, you need to you need to listen to me because this is my experience, you know, and I think it is worth listening to so that you understand why you are so uncomfortable with it. If I have to say that, I find it like a bit like what the fuck is wrong with you, you know, like, like you know. So it, it makes me question why Singaporeans are like that, lah. Why Singaporean Chinese are like that? It's it's not just discomfort, but an entire worldview that is built on certain myths, right? That you get where you get, for example, because of hard work and not because of inherent structural advantages that you may have as a majority in this country. For example, you know, it's this idea that. Um, your parents work hard and therefore you got to where you got yeah. for example and 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 also this idea that like uh, because you are in the overwhelming majority you do have automatic unquestioned access to all of these good things right it's 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 like an entire worldview that is built upon these myths and lies then coupled with our culture's addiction to comfort, it's a very dangerous thing, right? It's a very potent mix, right? Like the the lies of meritocracy and the lies and the lies that elide all the structural racism and other discriminations that I work plus comfort. I agree. Terrible yeah. combination. So I I, I don't I, right? I I sometimes get very tired yeah. that I have to do the work, you know, for for the the, the majority group, and I I just don't want to participate. You know, and I, I, I sometimes feel very at odds with this because 
uh, I think this is like the teacher part of me la, coming through when I when I, I when I when I want to help mm. a person and say like okay this is how you understand this you know like because because it's <laughs> it's, it's in my nature to like as an educator to want to actually bring someone along and make them realize why they are in this place or why why they're not understanding something but I'm mm. also so tired of this I keep saying this I know but it is it the, the fact that I keep repeating it tells tells you the in, how tired I am about the whole thing. Yeah. Like obviously another very important obstacle to having any kind of progress on the race question here is like our political culture. You know, because of our history and the anxiety and paranoia built around race in this country, right? Race is one of the biggest kind of no-go zones for public discourse. Right, it's it's built into our into our curriculum. It's built into our art censorship. It's built into our public life, our newspapers, and and the way in which we see these very plastic representations of diversity on like the on on, yeah, on uh, everywhere, right? You know, um, and and then it's like the political narrative of the CMIO multicultural utopia that we live in, right? That how that narrative is so powerful and overriding and you know, that is one of also one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves and that we feed and they are so reluctant to dismantle because this country is built on storytelling <laughs> you know and once you start to once you start to pick apart the story right it can be it can be quite frightening because it's like you you feel fundamentally that this crisis this country built on crisis is you know if we don't have a story to go on how do you chart the future right i think you mentioned that it's this whole idea of stories is also built into our curriculum so as an educator i i totally agree mm. and i have i have this thing against what i'm going to call this awful racial harmony day that we celebrate every year and i find it problematic mm that we just celebrate one day of racial harmony and we use this incident mm. that happened, the racial riots, um, the what the 1964 racial riots, right? And we build the whole thing around this. You know, this 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 uh, don't get me wrong, this is an awful mm. event, but to just build the whole thing around it and not and, and, and to gloss over everything else, uh that's that, since our independence is a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Know, yeah, I guess like the centering of those riots in the imagination is basically saying, um, "Don't rock the boat, right? We have built a beautiful thing. We have built a prosperous, powerful machine, you know, an economic powerhouse. On, you know, despite the fact that we live with all of this potential for division, don't rock the fucking boat, right? You know, if you are unhappy, suppress it. You know what I mean? It's like if you have something to say." Or, or the conversation is there is no reason for you to be unhappy actually why are you unhappy yeah yeah that actually that why you're happy so like it's a combination of gaslighting but then also under the table right going actually we know like it's quite bad but it's it, it it's not becoming it's not becoming of you to bring it up so so often or at all you know that's that's the vibe right i mean it's going to sound very national day parade here but i think there's a lot to be to be proud of mm. in in terms of what or in terms of where we are at, you know, we, um, but there are also a lot of problems, and I think we need to understand that there are a lot of problems and that racism is a real thing. I said at the beginning of this that I was trying very hard in my early days 
to, to tell people that my race is not who I am to be as a-racial mm. as possible you know but now like having gone through all of that I am trying I wouldn't say it's 100% but I'm trying to fully embrace it on every level mm. and the conversation has changed a little bit for me la. it's not just my race is not who I am but also my race is not just who I am you know it's there and I'm and I'm and I'm very aware of it and I want people to know it you know as much as possible and to make them uncomfortable mm. like what I do with my students you know sometimes when where they don't appreciate racism you know they don't because ma- many of mm. them are majority race um, you know and, and it's no fault mm. of their own because of the of the lives that they lead and what I do is that I actually impart this feeling of discomfort onto them by ex- sharing my my experiences yeah. you know so it, it that that uh, it's allowing them to see me as a minority and un- allowing them to understand what I go through on an everyday. There is a blindness that comes with living as a majority. I just, like, I remember very specifically, and I've related this story to you many times, right? Like, uh, I wasn't aware for the longest time that Singaporean Chinese people had an accent, mm. right? Until one day I was, like, on a school excursion with a good friend of mine uh, who who's a good Indian friend of mine from school, and I was in JC at the time, so I was, like, 17, 18, right? And then she... We were telling jokes at the back of the bus, and then she suddenly breaks out in this, like, impersonation of, like, a Chinese girl. And I was so flawed by that impersonation and the accent she was putting on, right? <laughs> and, like, that legit was the first time... I ever heard the first time. That the first time. The first time. Yeah, I'm. It's the first time I ever heard. So that before accent. this, and you didn't. It, like, you had no idea that Chinese people had an accent. <laughs> no, because like no, because like Chinese people are very quick to do Malay accents and Indian accents in a joking way, right? But like the right. tables are very rarely turned. Right, and so like that was the first time I heard it, and it was such a, a revelatory moment. From then, I've just never been able to look back. <laughs> I mean, the point I made is that there is an in- incredible blindness that comes, like you know, it's that thing where that that story about two fish swimming in the ocean, right? And then one ter- one fish turns to the other fish and says, "Isn't the water great?" And then that fish turns back and says, "What's water?" If you're swimming in this like world that is created for your comfort, you don't see it. Yeah, it's a- absolutely true, and that is uh, that is privilege, lah. Uh, right on some. Uh, it, that is privilege right it's the water that you swim in and the air that you breathe right and like you need to i think it's so important that you you to these young people that you 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 work with that you are disrupting that that blindness as much as possible because you know you can go through a very long time without seeing it yeah um, absolutely right like one of the big yeah and that is like a huge problem in this country So Joel, I don't know if I've ever told you, but the first friend who's ever called me uh, by my name, and by that I mean pronounced it absolutely right, okay? The first friend mm. that actually did this was Harish, okay? This is a friend of ours from our university. Oh, from uni, yeah, from, from USP. Exactly, yeah. from, our, from our uni days, and I was 21 years old. So it took 21 years for a friend to, to call me by my name correctly. Before that, everyone would call me Kishan, and yeah, <laughs> Kishan. You know, with with the with this. It actually makes it sound like a Chinese name. Yeah. Hey, Kishan, are you here? Correct, yeah. <laughs> so right, right. It started in primary school, and it just didn't change. And in secondary school, I I I would I would introduce myself as Kishan, but. 
people would very quickly forget and then I would get tired. I was like, whatever, mm. you know? And I think at one point, even in the army, I just called myself Kishan. <laughs> I was just so tired oh, of people getting it wrong. So when Harish called me Kishan, uh, when I was 21 years old in university, mm. I actually was... It was a bit of a, 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 a shake up for me because the only people are... Uh, before that, who's ever called me correct, uh, who's, who's ever pronounced my name correctly were my parents. So it felt like my mother was talking to me, and I felt a bit like a bit jarred. I was like, <laughs> and then I remember Harish, uh, when I related this experience to Harish, uh, when he said my name, when he pronounced my name correctly, he said to me, "Why would I ever call you anything else?" And I thought that was actually such a wonderful statement. Interesting. Why I bring this up was is because. When, when I was studying in the UK, you know, moving from mm. Singapore to London uh, was all sorts of exciting, right? But what I was mm. not prepared for was the shift in my minority status. Mm. Going to London, my minority status, I was still a minority, of course, but I was my, m- the majority minority. You know, yeah. and I would hear Hindi on the streets where I was living near Whitechapel, yes. right? And I would hear Hindi on the streets entirely. I, w- I would hear the 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 the, the Pakistani uh, uh, Pakistani biryani guy who would speak in who would speak in Urdu and uh, shares like similarities with Hindi. And I, I would be a bit shocked because I, I would not hear Hindi in Singapore, and to hear it so often, yeah. to hear it so just on the streets like that, it was just mind-boggling, and I felt so. Like elevated in some weird way. I remember this incident where we had to fill in a census, and I got a census in the mail, and um, there was this segment on race, and I was so used to just ticking the very last box that I just looked at the last column, and I couldn't find Indian anywhere. And then I went. I remember going up one box at a time until I found myself at the very top, and I felt so <laughs> like, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was a very I mean, it shouldn't be, but it was such an elevating mm. experience, you know? Like, I felt heard. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember you telling me this and, like, how uh, transformative the experience was for you and, like, how much joy it brought you. And that made me very happy. And also, like, very sad, I guess, just to think that it, it takes such a radical displacement for you to feel something like that. Um, and and that in a, in a country where we claim to have you know, this beautiful multi-racial fabric that you can't feel like that in the country of your birth, even though, you know, you're 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 in a minority but by no means alone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's a strange thing because like moving to the UK obviously I had like the complete opposite experience. <laughs> like I I have become one of those Chinese people who become a minority and go like, wow, what is race? Ah, oh, race can feel like this, ah, wow, so interesting, <laughs> huh? This experience. You you basically like and develop I'm, this woke muscle, is it? But no lah, you you've had this. No lah, obviously not lah. It's like, in fact, I mean, I said this before the podcast, but like, I think compared to many other Chinese Singaporeans, uh, who've gone. For example, to the UK, right? I've become very reluctant to jump on that race bandwagon <laughs> because my understanding of racism is not 
novel, right? And like, I think a lot of people are calling this particular demographic out, right? Who are like, they go abroad and then like, they suddenly deal with white people and all kinds of racism, you know, based on race. And then they're like, oh, you know, um, you know, racism is such a horrible thing. We should all like, you know, like <laughs> yes. call out these racist structures without irritating. ever once, yeah. yeah, without ever once considering how they might have been part of the problem where yeah, it came from, right? Uh, it, it, it's 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 so irritating because like this growing up a majority privilege you can carry it with you across national uh borders does it make sense it's like it's it's i'm so you know protected from racial discrimination in this country that when i experience it in the uk right it doesn't actually bother me as much as because in singapore thought it would your yourself is such an a-racial body that correct that you don't think about it i'm so i'm so correct i'm so rooted in the confidence of my identity wow must be nice it's you know not gonna lie it's quite nice Christian it's you know like the the you know like I get the knee house and I get the and I get the other you know I get the expertise and I get the people with the weird microaggressions but like it doesn't because I've not had a lifetime of experiencing it it doesn't chafe against me right uh, I, as hard I can as see I how that it, is yeah you know what I mean yeah and you know like coming to that realization was quite sobering for me it goes like wow this is the extent this is the extent you know of like the privilege that we have as Chinese people here you can go to another country right and not feel not feel it even when you are in a stark minority there so I think going back to the point about Chinese uh, majority race people going to another country for for us it's Chinese people going to London in this case and suddenly becoming very woke and then like flexing their woke muscle I I think that, that, that there's something to be said about how people are now jumping on the Black Lives Movement bandwagon because the Black Lives uh, Matter sorry, bandwagon. Yeah, my bad. The Black Lives Matter uh, bandwagon. And the, mm. many people are just hashtagging it. And they, they, they see they see uh, African-Americans going through this, sort, this awful thing. And they feel compelled yeah. to be an ally. Which is great. But yeah. it is an ally with... They are basically being an ally without any level of introspection on how complicit they are to racism in their own country. You know, which is Correct. very painful. Yeah, there's, there's some sort of, as we talked about, like, performative yeah, allyship. Yeah, performative allyship, right, is that thing where, like, I think a few weeks ago, suddenly Instagram was filled with all these well-meaning black screens. Oh, yeah, that uh, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pledging support to Black Lives Matter. And then, like, actually a lot of black activists uh, on Twitter, for example, were going like, uh, actually, this literally blacks out what was a very useful channel for sharing information Correct. and images and footage from the protest. Um, and... You know, it was very clearly a kind of social media event, right? That people could just participate in like any like any other kind of social media challenge. Yeah. Um yeah, and it was very disturbing, especially in the context of like Singapore, right? To see like brands and social media personalities getting on board without once uh, without a history, I guess, of calling out uh, racism on our own shores and then without mentioning in the same breath as Black Lives Matter. Um, you know the situation here as well and then like some people in fact getting quite prickly about when they were confronted with this going like oh yeah but you know that actually detracts from Black Lives Matter to talk about um, racism on our own shores because you know I think someone I can't remember who posted like a social media personality where like the Black Lives Matter is the fight right now you know and anything else we talk about sure it's valid but it's like distracting from the fight I'm just like uh really? that's, that's, that's That's a bit tone deaf and not 
as I said, like not not introspective in your own allyship, yeah. right? I mean, uh. there's a few things at work, right? You know, one being like actually this rush to flood in and show solidarity with Black Lives Movement on social media, for example. There's a kind of whiteness to it. Does that make sense? <laughs> there's a kind of white. There's this weird kind of white guilt to it, right? In a so when you kind of unthinkingly reproduce that impulse here without considering the fight for anti-racism in this country, you are in a way aligning yourself with this kind of like white guilt impulse. Oh, I see. That sure, context yeah. that 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 needs to that contextually makes very little yeah, sense. Yeah, because because it's here. not the same fight. Right? On some level it's not no, yeah. it is not the same fight. Yeah. And and it is the same fight in that like anti-racism is a global movement sure, right? sure, yeah. The thing that I think Is that Like if Black Lives Matters Does not occasion you To consider the anti-racism The fight for anti-racism On your own shores Then what the fuck Is it yeah, occasioning you, you To think of What are you doing Then this you know? is truly As you say A social yeah. media event That you've decided To participate in It's like, like You know it's like Sure You know Examine any anti-blackness that you have in yourself because it exists right in this part of the world it definitely oh, exists yeah, I agree. and like you know be prepared to have those conversations with your parents who are looking at these protests and going yo why they protest like that you know yeah. be prepared to have those conversations but then equally you know you know also have conversations about like racism that is happening next door you know or in at the dinner table so it's it's all in, it's all integrated right and i just think like um you know this idea that somehow talking about racism in Singapore detracts from Black Lives Matter is one of the most like intellectually disingenuous things I have ever heard. To my to my mind, it's like you actually need to be very aware of where your political and social currency has the most value and where you actually have skin in the fucking game. Right. Right. Performative allyship is that thing where you're basically just going through the motions, right? Where if you are saying something or doing something, it comes from a place of feeling like pressure into doing it or like you cannot arrow because like oh. Oh, okay, I guess it's the the right thing to yeah, do. Like, it's the Vogue you know, thing to uh, do right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the Vogue thing to do right now. And like, you know, it's just like, oh, click share or that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, uh, Right. But then obviously we know that true meaningful allyship uh, comes with much higher stakes than that, right? So it's like when, you know, like brands, for example, in Singapore... You know, pledge it, you know, displaying solidarity Black Lives Movement in a very like, oh, in a very grandiose, you know, way. Actually, the stakes for that are so much lower um, than calling out racism in Singapore, right? Because if you're a brand and you make a statement about, you know, racism in Singapore, you actually could stand to alienate. Yeah. A portion of your Correct. of your clientele, yeah. right? You could also get you know, and because of the way you know uh, the channels for expression are so far and few in between here, there's also a chance you might run into there's trouble risk with la, the yeah, law. Sure, yeah, yeah, there's legal implications as well, right? So it's like, yeah, it's well and good to say oh BLM, right? But then like obviously the stakes are much higher to comment on um, you know the local situation. I guess the, where the stakes are higher is where you have. That's where you know you have skin in the game, right? Like. I think it goes back to yeah. fundamentally, if you want to be an ally, you need to do the work to be an ally. Mm. It is not just simply putting up a hashtag, participating in a social media event, or being there for a one-off thing. That is not an ally. Yeah. We don't need people like that. You know, If you want to mm. be the ally, put in the work, put in the hard work. Don't come and ask your minority friends, what should I read? Uh? Don't 
please don't please don't ask <laughs> us to do this okay it's very tiring you can go the internet everybody can access regardless of race you yeah. can go and access and you can find the work because you know what I did it I found the work that I needed to find on my own you know and many people have like you have Joe you found the work that mm. you needed to 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 read to understand certain things and to be the ally that you are right now so people need to just do better I've really enjoyed making this episode, Kishin. I just feel like um, I've learned a lot about you, mm. my best friend, and I'm very um, happy and privileged to have listened to some oh, of the sharing. Yeah, I mean, today. for me, as I yeah. as I said at the very start, this is a bit of therapy, and it truly has been. Mm. That these are things that I I don't think I've actually shared with anyone, so it's been quite lovely yeah. to not only talk about it with you, but also put it onto a podcast for all you guys to listen to. I, I hope we can all try in, you know, especially Chinese Singaporeans to disrupt that blindness that I was talking about earlier in the episode to kind of like recognize it, name it, and then try and, you know, wash the, the scales from your eyes, so to speak. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so that's all from us this week. We'll see you next time. This has been Joel signing off. And this is Kishan. See you all. Bye bye. Stay safe, everyone.